Hello, I'm Rebecca Carter, and this is Not Nosy, the podcast where I have conversations with artists that I know and admire about their life and their art. I may ask a lot of questions, but I'm not nosy, just curious. <laughs> Today we've got Amy Batali-Bassi on the podcast. Amy is a director and producer based out of Melbourne, Australia. Her award-winning short films have been shown in film festivals all over the world. She's incredibly driven, and what's so inspiring about her work and hearing her story is how she's managed to create actual change with the work that she's doing. She's telling stories that aren't being told that need to be told and really creating conversation pieces around a lot of really important issues and at the same time Amy has a really great sense of humor and I've seen her comedy work and I really enjoy that as well so we had a great conversation just a little backstory on the recording of this episode because of the crazy time difference between where Amy is and where I am between Miami and Melbourne which it seems to vary between like 14 and 16 hours difference depending on what time of year it is. I made a plan to talk with Amy while she was on a trip to the States. And then at last minute, because she was traveling, it just seemed like the timing wasn't going to work. And as she was, we were kind of writing back and forth, probably going to cancel it. uh, She wrote me, unless you're available right now. So I had already researched her, but I certainly was not super prepped and hadn't organized my notes, but we went for it. And within 10 minutes of that email, we were up and we were recording and it was going to be a short interview just because we had really tight time restrictions, but we did our best and we ended it, which you'll hear about halfway through this episode. And then... Uh, I left the call completely inspired, ready to change the world, and I'm guessing Amy enjoyed herself as well because soon enough she offered me another chunk of time the following day right before she was set to fly home. So we recorded this interview in two parts and I'll hop back in right in the middle just to transition between those two parts, but I'm so excited. We really did get a full-time interviewing Amy Batali-Bassi. Enjoy. Not Nosy Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash notnosy. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. She's crazy the time difference I'm appreciating it just traveling and just my body going where am I what are we doing (laughs) would you do Berlin New York DC or just in LA yes I did came through London to Berlin and then I did New York DC and now I'm in LA yeah so it's been um it's been a whirlwind and it's literally around the world so I've is circumnavigate the word? I always they that's always used in terms of oh, yeah. sailing around the world, but I haven't sailed, but I've flown around the world. Yeah, well, right. And you're gonna go back the other, like you're going in one direction the whole way, right? Yeah, one direction, that's... like that pop band. That's me. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in one direction around the world. So I know you from a hair record. Um, 
mostly, but it's amazing to see what your career is as a filmmaker. You've done so much. And I just kind of wanted to, I guess, kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, just learn a little bit more about about you. I know you're from Australia and, and uh, have a strong connection with the Solomon Islands, but I don't know if you were born there or you're, that's where your roots are. Maybe you can... Yeah, I grew up in Australia in the state of Queensland, which is in the north and so, yeah, tropical Queensland. And the slogan is, beautiful one day, perfect the next. And it, in terms of weather, it really is. And, yeah, I grew up in a big country town, which was lots of fun, but at the same time, you know, I'd, I'm a filmmaker now, but I didn't know that, that being a, f- a director or a writer was actually a job or something that you could do. It wasn't really what... Um, I didn't have any role models who were doing that kind of thing to look up to. But yeah, I grew up in Queensland and then eventually I started going back to the Solomons to see my family and and really just meet my family and start learning about that part of my culture and identity. So yeah, Uh, and I guess Queensland was a good place to grow up in. Yeah, I went to some good schools and was fortunate that way. Yeah, but uh, during school it never occurred to me even that like I say, that I could be a filmmaker. And actually, now that I'm here in LA, we just went past Universal Studios the other day in the Uber. And I I thought to myself, I actually went, we had like this trip to the US when I was 11 years old, and we went to Universal Studios. And even then, I, I loved it. I loved it so much. But even then, it never occurred to me. I think we also went to SeaWorld. And after that, I was like, I want to be a dolphin trainer. Like, <laughs> it never occurred to me that... <laughs> of course. I could make films. <laughs> yeah. And you actually studied photography, right? First in college? Yeah, yeah. So after high school, I actually started doing a journalism course. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's the thing that I want to do and want to be. Just because I think I really liked writing in my English class in high school. And everyone else was going to university. And it seemed to be the thing that they encouraged us to do. No one was talking about having a gap year or having time off after university. It was really kind of ingrained into us. You should go to university and that's a really worthy thing to do if you want to have a job or career in anything. Sure. I I started a journalism course and um, I was, was, you know, quite academic and a good student. And um, when I did the journalism course, I was kind of, I had to move to the Big Smoke, which was a a city called Brisbane, which is actually a pretty small city. But to me, (laughs) it was the Big Smoke. And it was, you know, uh, the 1999, um, it was an exciting time in terms of music and culture in in that city and arts. Um, And I was thrown into this journalism course with over a hundred other students. And I just couldn't find my place. And I just... Uh, I, I really struggled and um, and also journalism didn't gel with me. I remember them explaining the that triangle um, in terms of how you should tell a story, that you should, like an upside down triangle, that you should put the most important things first in, in the article and then, you know, it kind of dwindles down to the least important stuff so that the editor can then just chop off bits of the story and, <laughs> and finish it where where they need to for space in the paper and that concept of storytelling did not gel with me I was just like 
yeah, even at age 18, um, I realised that, you know, that's not the kind of storytelling that I want to do. So um, I really did, actually, I quit that course, the journalism course, which was a big thing for me, you know, like I was saying, I was a, I was a good student and quitting, I thought I was letting down you know, everyone, but really no one cared. And um, it was just me kind yeah. of having my own expectations about, um, you know, from high school that, you know, I've got to get a degree so I can do something and be someone. Um, but the truth is I dropped out and I, I worked full time and I just kind of spent a lot of time figuring out, yeah, who I was and what I wanted to do. I went traveling around Australia and I went back to live in the Solomons for a little while. And yeah, as an 18-year-old, that was a really, yeah, really pivotal point um, in my life. And then after that kind of travel and, um, you know, soul-searching, I kind of thought about what, you know, what I liked doing. And when I was in the Solomons, my dad gave me a, uh, like a Minolta SLR camera. And that was mm -hmm. my first camera, actually, that I, um, that was like a manual camera with, with the, the lens and I, I read this how to you know how introduction to photography book kind of had that in one hand and the camera in another hand and that's when I shot my first roll of film on an SLR camera and uh, yeah so when I got back to Australia I kind of was thinking you know what what actually yeah do I want to do what do I like doing and photography was the thing and so yeah I did a three-year course in photography Wow. And then how soon after did you go back to school for filmmaking? Yeah, um, well, and I think I did the photography degree because, um, you know, I, I was fortunate and lucky to be able to pursue what, what I enjoyed doing. Um, oh, actually, I forgot. I did a year of arts as well, which is a Bachelor of Arts is just like a general, um, we call it, we joke around and we were calling it Bachelor of Miscellaneous because it's really for people who, do, <laughs> who don't want to, I mean, they don't know what they want to do. So you just kind of do a few subjects in the arts. And um, so I did a year of that before I did the three-year degree. In the third year of that photography degree, you have, sorry, second and third year, you have to major in a stream of photography. And I think there was like photojournalism, which I, I wasn't going to do, um, and like commercial photography, and the other one was art photography, and so that's the one that I did, and it was really fantastic right. um, in terms of developing an art practice and and um, concepts around your photography and your work, and uh, but unfortunately, a degree in art photography doesn't really uh, qualify you for anything. So. <laughs> Even though, again, I did well at university and um, I, I won this prize uh, one year and it was like $5,000, actual $5,000. And for me, I was so poor, just, you know, probably living below the poverty line. Um, and I won this money and one of the first things I did was buy a little video camera. So just one of those, you know, mini DV cams, handheld, um, pretty crude technology. But um, yeah, that really was instrumental in helping me to move into the moving image. So during that course, I actually started doing a lot of video art and project, projecting in public spaces and um, that they were lovely and let me do that under the photography degree. So um yeah, that's kind of where I started experimenting with film and video. 
And so when I finished my degree and I had no real qualifications in anything, um, I actually, again, I did the thing of just doing some more soul searching. I worked and I traveled, I did around the world tour over six months. And um, yeah, while I was doing that travel, I actually, I applied to university to study film and I did my um, university interview in Gaudi Park in Barcelona <laughs> and I had to go and edit oh. yeah I had to go and edit my submission tape at the library with VHS tapes like VHS to VHS it was crazy and then send <laughs> that VHS tape because this is like 2006 I had to send that then um to Melbourne and what, like airmail or something yeah it was crazy there was like like in terms of technology like I, so I didn't expensive. even have an MP3 player. I was literally um, hoarding this huge uh, book of CDs and a discman, and that's how I would listen to my music with my headphones on as I was, like, you know, being really cool, walking around Barcelona um, with my CD right. discman. Um, but, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the technology. There's no Vimeo or YouTube, so I literally put it on a VHS tape and I – sent it to Australia and um, thankfully I got into the course that was a, a, a one-year documentary post-grad course. Yeah. That's awesome. Man, you're, gonna, you're making me jealous with all of your travels. That's fine. What year was that in, that you were in Barcelona uh, uh, applying for the grad degree? Yeah, that was 2006 that I was doing that and actually I did um, I was living in a small country town like uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any Australian television there's a show called Home and Away and it's just kind of um, blonde <laughs> blue-eyed people in a town set by the beach and a lot of gossip and relationships and um, anyway I lived in a town that was basically like that TV show <laughs> on the western side of Australia and um, <laughs> I, I found some creative people and they were uh, volunteering in this local cinema so I um, I also jumped on board and I was a 35 millimeter projectionist for the cinema and um, I actually made I got that little camera that I want to use university and I made a little short film about projecting at the cinema and actually at the time it was Australia's only 35 millimeter volunteer cinema so uh, and it I don't think that they do it anymore so um, <laughs> well, that's a very specific <laughs> I know um, I think they just got a projector like everyone else <laughs> I'm a digital projector now but um yeah I made a little film about about me um yeah, being a projectionist and I entered it into the local film festival and it was like a 10-minute film and it won an award at the festival <laughs> and that was really my first kind of like proper short documentary film um, and I used that to enter into university, so yeah. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, and now you're like a, a film festival um how would you the word junkie comes to mind but that's not what I want to use at all an expert like you you're you're always it's amazing just even in the past couple of weeks you've been doing all of these film festivals all over the world so yeah I wanted to know the year because I saw your your tide of change film is from 2010 right yes. or was it filmed maybe in so so a few years before that. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it was yeah, it was two thousand six that I applied. Two thousand and seven, I did the documentary course, 
Um, yeah, and then again, I think it's the same with many degrees really. I'm kind of learning, you know, once you finish your degree, you really have to get experience in the world before, you know, that, that piece of paper isn't necessarily going to qualify you for employment, particularly in the arts and creative industries. So when I finished in 2007, um, again, um, I call it film school hangover. It's this period of time where you're like, yeah, I made some films, sure, you know, like, they were great. Like, and you think that they're so important and amazing. Right. <laughs> your student, like your film school films. It's like, yeah, they showed at some festivals. And yeah, it's just that period of like, oh, okay, you, I actually have so much more to learn. And it's really, really hard in the industry. Right. So there's this kind of period oh, of just like, mm, with your friends, what are you doing? I don't know. What are you doing? Have you got any work? No, I haven't. Have you? So, um, yeah, and it just takes time. So after uni, I kind of, yeah, spent time trying to develop my skills. And, uh, you know, I, I had at that time I in my 20s, I had never even owned a car, but or nor wanted one, I saved up thousands of dollars for this uh, video camera. And um, as soon as I had that camera, that was, and it was all, it was so fancy because it was HD, <laughs> which was like the new technology at the time. Um, but it, and, and broadcast quality. So um, I had this camera and then I could start just kind of doing right. little, um, you know, little packages for non-government organisations or documenting events. Um, so that kind of helped me to make a bit of income. But also I fell into working in the community arts, which was really, really a lifesaver because um, at the time fun film funding in Australia was really, really difficult um, to get on your own as an emerging filmmaker and it still kind of is. So um, I fell into working through um, kind of community arts organisations and teaching filmmaking with culturally diverse groups and then having first-time filmmakers write their own stories and direct them and work on each other's short films and then having a film screening at the end for community. So it was this kind of, I did that for many years, probably about eight years or so. And um, yeah, it really helped me to sustain my own career in filmmaking. But the benefit was that, yeah, I got to work um, with some amazing people, people from refugee backgrounds, women and children and people from Indigenous and Pacific Islander backgrounds. Um, yeah, that that was a really rewarding time. And, yeah, I still kind of, you know, go in and out of arts-based community work when I can. And so were you basically teaching a course kind of thing or, like, you were leading people, people would come to you or your group to, and, and you would kind of teach them how to go through and make a film. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, so they were they were project-based film programs, I guess, and or community projects. And actually the way that it happened was because I had made my documentaries at film school and someone just came up to me, someone from the Pacific Island community, a woman and she's just said to me I, I have this story that I want to tell you know how can I how can I do it how can I make a film like you've made a film and actually at, at the time I didn't have a direct answer for her I was kind of like well it's so hard for me even with the skills to make a film I'm not sure how I can help you but let me think about it so 
I talked to my friend who I had done some teaching work at a school with and Mm -hmm. we kind of put our heads together and yeah started speaking to some organizations and then we would um, apply for funding through arts uh, like government arts bodies and get some some money that way so a lot of the projects and and that one um, rolled into a, a project called Pacific Stories which was really fantastic focusing on yeah storytelling by uh, Pacific Islanders living in Melbourne where I'm based and that was really fantastic and then from that project other projects grew and other communities would approach me and yeah I just kind of built a network of, of these amazing people and projects it was um, yeah it's really one of the most valuable things for, for me personally and yeah for my career as well yeah yeah it's very rewarding yeah yeah also yeah, be able to get those stories out there. And I know something that you've been focusing on a lot is trying to tell stories that maybe aren't being told. Um, so, God, I feel like uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. And I'm looking at the clock. I'm trying to figure out how to get it all. So, um, so the Solomon, a lot of your, your recent work has uh, – is related to the Solomon Islands and your family's history in the Solomon Islands. You said that you started, at what age did you start going and meeting that family? And Yeah, I went um, in my early teens, actually. So I was thinking about it the other day, the first time I went to the Solomons with my younger siblings as well, we all got terribly sick. <laughs> Just like, you know, because it was a bit of culture shock for us. We weren't used to the diet or the lifestyle. But yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that was our first visit. And I remember it very clearly, but it was the beginning of, yeah, some some amazing times and it was many many years later after I had finished in 2007 my documentary studies that I went back to the village and I took this camera that I was telling you about that I saved up for I took it with me and I just felt compelled to document what was happening at the time and I went back for the passing of my grandmother and at that time the high tides were so high they were the biggest that I had seen and everyone was talking about it the biggest that they had seen and uh, it was just a really important time but I I just I just knew I've got to document this and so I just sat down with all of my uncles and aunties and I, I interviewed them and they were really I think that was the first time that they'd done anything like that and they were, but they were very oh, generous um, and maybe didn't really understand what would happen but um, at the end of it but now now they now they're into it now they know now when I go back they kind of expect me probably to have some sort of camera with me <laughs> um, yeah but I that trip I got about 40 hours of footage which was quite a lot so when I got home I kind of thought, well, there's so much here and some of it is just for me and my family. Um, But what, yeah, what part of that do I want to share? And it was around the rising sea levels and and climate change and and how that was affecting my family's village. So I made an 11-minute short film and that Mm -hmm. short film, yeah, has since travelled around the world, which has been pretty overwhelming. And there are lots of environmental film festivals, which is really fantastic. And I, I also just 
you know, that was quite a while ago now that we made the film and it just showed, uh, I spoke at a, a panel at the Berlinale just recently about climate change and we showed the the film there. So it's still kind of a, a, t a resource for talking about climate change and creating discussion. And I'm kind of surprised. I never thought that it would have that impact and also some some really great people have been able to see that the film and subsequently we've done um, community projects in the village and, and gotten water tanks and done disaster management training and small gardens training because there isn't enough space for gardens and the, the tides are coming up um, so they can't plant gardens near the house so we've done training around you know what are alternative ways of growing a little we call it a soup soup garden um, and we've done first aid courses and set up a women's group so yeah from that kind of time a whole lot of community cultural development projects have happened yeah which is pretty that's amazing. incredible yeah. yeah the film's what like eight eight plus years yes. old and it's still being shown at film festivals I watched it I, I thought it was very powerful and a lot of the images because the tide was so high and um you know, just everyone kind of walking through the water or rowing through the village or the the pigs, they, they couldn't feed the pigs because there was no place even to put the food in the, no, it was just really, um, really powerful. And that's, that's great. You started, yeah, you started like a, a community campaign, right? Like a fundraising campaign and all those social projects came out of it. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's incredible. You know, it's, it's so nice to see actual results come from from creating something like that yeah yeah because it's not I mean it wasn't the goal of the pro to do it was just yeah as I say I, I was kind of compelled to press record or hit record right and um <laughs> and <Might> yeah <laughs> so yeah that was it was unexpected that the that would be the outcome uh but it yeah it was it's overwhelming but made me kind of continue and go oh this is the impact that filmmaking can have yeah keep going right <laughs> and um so I was reading about the Solomon Islands and this is a problem that you know that that some of the land is getting flooded and they're talking about potentially having people having to relocate entirely and I was reading I, I it might not have been the same village uh as your family but it's it seems like uh one group has maybe even bought some land on Fiji or something to try and relocate. I don't know. Is there any talk about relocating still from that village or, and I, I don't know, I guess like, how do they even do that? Is that what they have to do? Like they have to find a big piece of land somewhere and then like everyone just goes or. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Climate refugees are a real thing and it, it has started to happen um, throughout the Pacific. I know that there are, uh, there's a community in the Cataract Islands that has, um, has started the moving process uh, and, and that's in Papua New Guinea. Um, so it's kind of, I've been looking at them and the way that they've done that and it's good to see that it can happen. But it is really, uh, it's really, really difficult and complex issue because moving is really difficult, particularly in the Solomon Islands and 
just because of land ownership. I mean, already Mm -hmm. without potentially needing to move the land that that my family are on is already contested so there are land Mm. land rights battles kind of going and they have been going for a while so moving is difficult in terms of land ownership to start off with and um and then there's just you know my villages actually we did a census a while ago and it's a few smaller villages kind of all joined together and there are about a thousand people um a part of that so that's quite a lot of people to move it's um and then just potentially having to move away from the sea is a completely different way of living mm-hmm. um so yeah mm-hmm. the at the moment there are projects that that we're doing and that other um non-government organizations are doing like replanting mangroves and you know smaller type thinking about building a wall uh, like barriers uh, which hasn't been done but Mm -hmm. um you know there's research being done but they're all kind of just temporary solutions the diff the most difficult thing is the possibility that people will have to move and it's something that obviously we've been talking about for a long time but the logistics of doing that are really difficult but I know that there is you know a climate change committee in the village and there's a village committee and you know they're all working towards trying you know trying to think about what what might be the best thing to do but yeah it's difficult so in the meantime we just yeah we do these projects just to help make life a little easier the current life yeah yeah Yeah. day-to-day living Yeah. yeah Yeah, you know, I'm in Miami and and there's it's different because of uh, the economics of it all, you, you know, here. But um, yeah, a lot of the same, a lot of concerns about the sea level rise, and you'll see Miami is one of the first places to disappear off the map when they show those <laughs> when they show those projections into the future and all of the things that they're starting to do and it. It's very complicated in a city of this size. It's very expensive and who's going to pay for it and what do you, you know, and, and these are these are multi-million dollar properties and so the people want to, you know, protect their, but um, yeah, it's, it's something that I'm starting to try and get a little more educated on here as well because it's just, not just the sea level rise, but that, you know, the, the, how do you call it, the health of the of the water, you know, it's, there's all these. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's quite overwhelming. I think when you start, (laughs) when you start really thinking about it, (laughs) uh, yeah. yeah. And it was interesting in Berlin, uh, the panel that I was a part of, uh, had academics and a scientist who did a slideshow, which is a very different way of storytelling <laughs> that I would never have thought of. But um, an inconvenient <laughs> truth is a, essentially a slideshow, right? So it was really usually sure. um, I'm used to being on panels with other filmmakers, but this was really different to have this kind of scientific view of and just the facts, like the the cold, hard facts, which are pretty grim, right. pretty grim. But I guess I was there to kind of talk about the human impact. And, and also we, we talked about what film can do to help uh, create this discussion, which was really great because that's, yeah, that's my, my battle. My fight is, is storytelling through film and creating awareness. Yeah. Right. So kind of staying on the Solomon Islands, uh, then 
more recently, or it was still a couple years ago, right? You you made the film Blackbird, the short film Blackbird. And I was reading, so maybe you can explain a little bit about what that is. And I was reading that you didn't even hear about it, about the Blackbirding until you were just quite recently. Um, yeah. And just what, how it came out and... Yeah, um, Blackbird is a short film that I made about three years ago as part of my master's studies at university. So I went back to study um, fiction or narrative filmmaking and uh, after doing documentaries and um, I guess I at the time I actually was, I was writing this other film like a romantic sci-fi which I was excited about but I really kind of, I thought to myself, I've got the resources and, and skilled people here to help me. What's the, the actual story that I really want to tell? And I had just done a community filmmaking project up in Queensland the year before that called Australian South Sea Islander Stories. And so I was facilitator and teaching how I get that, that community-based uh, model and I was teaching Australian South Sea Islanders how to tell their own story and they made their own short films um, and some of those people were my family as well and it really just got me um, it got me inspired and thinking about my own relationship to the history of blackbirding. So blackbirding is the term used to describe uh, the taking of Pacific Islanders uh, from their homelands to come and work in the sugarcane in Queensland in Australia about 150 years ago and the number that's estimated is around 60,000 Pacific Islanders. So uh, a lot of people don't know that history of Australia and uh, I mean not only around the world but also in Australia. When I pitched the idea to my lecturer at university when I said I wanted to make that film uh, for my final project, she was actually quite angry. You know, an educated woman, a lecturer, she said, I've never heard of this history before. Um, and subsequently, when I'm talking to people about it um, and at screenings, people always say, you know, in Australia, we didn't know about this history. And one of the reasons for that is that even though it was a huge part of our history, it's kind of been covered up by... Um, by excluding it from our education system. So as I said, I grew up in Queensland and I went to primary school and high school in Queensland and this is the place where the history happened. I also studied history in university for that one year of, of arts that I did and we never did a component or a, a, you know project or assignment or study into that history the history of blackbirding and Australian South Sea Islanders. And to me, that's so, it's shocking. It's it's absolutely shocking because uh, Australian South Sea Islanders and Pacific Islanders built the back of our sugar industry, the, the product that we, uh, you know, still use today. Uh, and so, yeah, that it wasn't, that history wasn't a part of my schooling, but, and it's the same for many other people. You know, I don't know exactly when I found out about the history because it is part of my own ancestry and also I did spend a lot of time around Australian South Sea Islanders and that community because they're my family as well. So uh, 
I don't know when it was. Maybe it was in my teens that I kind of just started discovering what an Australian South Sea Islander is and and that's um, the cultural group that has only in the 90s been recognised by the Australian government as a distinct cultural group who are the descendants of the Pacific Islanders that were brought to Australia. And so it's been a, a long journey of discovery. And in terms of my own personal history, I have three ancestors that were taken during or blackbirded during that time. And that fact I only found out, you know, just a few years ago. It also has to do with the fact that not only has the history been covered up through education and government, but also within communities, it's been really painful to talk about. So I think that that's really contributed. Yeah, it's been a number of things that have contributed to the fact that we don't know much well we know a lot about it but the history hasn't been spoken mm -hmm. about a lot in the past but in 2013 I think yeah 2013 was 150 years since the first ship sailed to Australia with Pacific Islanders so that 150 years was, uh, you know, acknowledged through a lot of Australian South Sea Islander organisations, had um, exhibitions and we did some film screenings in Brisbane. There was a march um, in Brisbane across the bridge calling out the names of ancestors. Yeah, 2013 was kind of this big shift in Australia within the community and so I think since then there's been this kind of groundswell of like, we acknowledge this history, we know it, and we're going to tell it. Yeah. So I guess, um, mm -hmm. yeah, Blackbird is part of that telling and retelling and reclaiming, yeah, yeah. the history. Yeah, it's, um, it, it was really, and, and there's even, you know, you can even look up on Wikipedia about Blackbirding. A bit, and it, it talks about how uh, the ships would go, and they would, you know, either take people or trick people to get on the boats, and all of the methods that they use, and then bring them back, and basically have them work as slaves on plantations or what have you. Really sad, awful um, stories, and and so so you've made this short film, Blackbird, which is a set in the eighteen set in this time, following a brother and a. Uh, of like a fictional telling right uh how do you call it a historical yeah an historical drama a historical drama uh following kind of a brother and a sister on one of these plantations and you said that when you started submitting it to film to film festivals you within australia it was like reject rejected like 90 percent of the time yeah in the in the first year of uh after making the film, which is a really pivotal year for a short film. It's it's all of us filmmakers hope that, you know, we're going to get a big film festival. And, you know, um, unfortunately, I didn't get into any of the major Australian film festivals with Blackbird during that time. Um, and I'm sure that there are lots of reasons for that. But I just, I do wonder why, you know, like it's it because it was 
you know, embraced by a lot of New Zealand film festivals, particularly Indigenous and Pacific Islander film festivals. Uh, it went to Canada to the Imaginative Film Festival in Toronto, which is the biggest presenter of Indigenous films in the world. Yeah, and it went to various other festivals, Indigenous festivals around the world. It did come back and do kind of in the second and third years a uh, a couple of smaller uh, film festivals in Australia, mainstream festivals, and I was really grateful for that. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's 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 interesting, and the film festival uh, kind of journey is not easy for any filmmaker. But it's it's really great that I could take the film to the Berlinale this year, um, just recently, and and show it there. And actually, it's a bit of an Un unusual trajectory for a short film because generally you would have you would hope that you have the big ones first but I'm I was happy to wait you know mm -hmm. I was so happy to wait we had probably our you know most significant film festival screening at the end um, of our film festival run and I'm just so grateful because it was such a great experience yeah that's wonderful and so and you got the would you get the Sun the Sundance Fellowship, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And then, are you still working on a feature length adaptation for Blackbird? And I guess where are you in that process? Yeah, so in two thousand and seventeen, I was extremely lucky and grateful to receive the Merita Mita Fellowship from the Sundance Native and Indigenous Department, and uh, that was really a life-changing thing. Uh, Meritamita uh, was the first Indigenous woman to make a feature film in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and so the, the fellowship is set up in her name, and I was the second recipient, so that was really fantastic. Mm. And it's a year-long fellowship, and it's still going to this day every year. Um, I think they're up to the, f the fourth round, uh, but it's a year-long support kind of supportive process where I was able to receive uh, feedback from the feature film that I'm developing uh, based on the short film and I was able to attend the Sundance Film Festival in 2017 and have meetings and kind of meet directors and producers and production companies and I was also able to attend a the Native Writing Lab in Santa Fe and also go to the Sundance Creative Producing Summit in Utah um, at the Sundance Resort which was very cool and um, mm -hmm. I was able to pitch kind of studios that are based in LA and production companies and uh, it, that entire year was this kind of year of professional development growth and personal growth and uh, being able to develop the story and the script that I've written and yeah I, I'm still just kind of yeah it's benefiting from that I'm here in LA and um, you know just meeting up with some of the mentors that I've had from that time a few years later. So, yeah, it, it was pretty amazing to be able to do all that. And for me, you know, when we go to film school, we talk about Sundance like it's <laughs> almost like it's this faraway thing that doesn't really exist. It's just a dream. So to go and be mm -hmm. there at the festival and be immersed in it was just 
entirely overwhelming but amazing. And I actually, I had to do an acceptance speech on my first day on the mountain and basically <laughs> it's, you know, blizzards outside. I've come from Melbourne summer. I'm jet lagged. My planes were late. I've been traveling for like over 24 hours and um, I that morning I had to get up and do an acceptance speech, which when I, it went fine, but I after that I went out into the snow and I just was like, what am I doing? doing it's freezing cold (laughs) i'm on a mountain in america and i've just received this award and then i went to see um i went to like it was a women's filmmaking brunch at the festival Uh and kerry washington had spoken and afterwards i thought oh my gosh i love her i want to go and say hi and um i did but it was just at that point when i met Kerry Washington that I was overwhelmed with emotion and I literally just started crying (laughs) (laughs) because it was all too much and I started crying and she just looked at me and she gave me the biggest hug so that was the time that I cried on Kerry Washington's shoulder (laughs) I'll never forget it and she was so lovely yeah (laughs) Oh. oh that's wonderful I know. Yeah, you felt like you were you were in some sort of movie or something. And so so where are you right now in terms of the Blackbird feature? Are you still uh tweaking this the script? Do you have funding? Yeah. Yeah, and I forgot to answer that part of the question. So, um yeah, where I am now with the feature film script is still in the middle of it and I so I have these drafts that I've written throughout the process of the fellowship and you know after in 2018 last year that was a really hard year and for the first time I experienced uh, what writer's block is and you know I'd heard about writer's block Mm -hmm. (laughs) writing the first draft of the feature it wasn't easy but it was the easiest part of the process for me, I think. And so where I'm struggling is the rewriting process and and how to incorporate more of the research that I'm doing. Also, I've gone back to the Solomon Islands and I've, you know, travelled down my lagoon and spoken to so many people and, and recorded oral histories. And so now I'm just kind of like, how do I include this feedback these oral histories, more of the research that I've done into this um, story. Um, how do I how do I weave this? How do I navigate that process? So, yeah, that was I think last year really overwhelming, and um, I didn't do a lot of writing. And um, I'm at the point mm-hmm. now where I'm I feel like I'm personally ready and career wise ready after showing Blackbird and making some more contacts. I feel like I'm ready to keep keep writing more so that's what I have to do is write another draft and also I really need to get an Australian producer on board and because it's such a personal story really close to my community I want to film in my family's um, lagoon and and village so I need to the producer is the person who brings in the funding and you know they they navigate the business side of the project and 
Um, so actually I need to find the right producer and so that's the mission that I'm on and it's kind of like it's kind of like finding a partner in life you know it's a really important mm -hmm. um, relationship in terms of a film and so yeah I'm just kind of patiently putting my feelers out and looking for the right person and also in the meantime I, I'm really keen to get some funding to help me keep writing the project and you know finding funding anywhere in the world to make a film is a big struggle and so yeah it's the same for me but I've just been to the Smithsonian to um to show Blackbird in Washington DC and it was really interesting seeing how museums operate and there's a lot of philanthropy and people who have funding and money and and trust funds and things like that who you know individuals who support um cult cultural projects and so now I'm thinking you know I would like to kind of see how philanthropy works and if I can tap into any of those people or, or that kind of structural resource to try and help fund Blackbird because in terms of budget like you know I come from making documentaries I've been making improvised short films lately because I don't have any money and I'm just finding willing actors mm -hmm. to jump on board and be in projects so I I'm resourceful but in terms of making a period feature film we're going to need quite a bit of money. So, you know, the way mm -hmm. I've written it, there's underwater footage, there's a 100-ton schooner sailing into the lagoon, <laughs> there's hundreds of people working on the sugar cane, it's an international production. It's big, you know. I've really got to yeah. find the big bucks and that in itself is overwhelming. So, yeah, got to find the right producer. I know I know they're out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny when you, you know, it's it's like I'm a filmmaker, but also there's so much, <laughs> there's all these other pieces you have to learn, you know, you have to do your business and your networking and your, there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces in order to get your work out yeah, there. Yeah, you got to hustle. <laughs> someone, yeah. someone actually I met at um, in Berlin, they were like, Amy, you got your hustle down. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Hey, good. I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> because, you know, I, I, I don't love social media, but I really try hard to, um, when I'm at festivals to share, you know, just share that experience. So I right. want people, yeah, to see what it's like. Yeah. Share it with them. Well, I've been following along and it's really interesting and it's incredible how many panels that you've been on as you've been traveling. And I guess one of my questions was also, what are the kinds of questions? So after you show something like Blackbird, what are the kinds of questions that the audience is acting? What's yeah. the, the reaction? Yeah, or that's the... a good question. It's interesting. Every audience is different depending on the country, also depending on the program. The program that Blackbird was a part of um, in Berlin was actually quite a heavy program and so there were themes of um, nuclear testing, colonialism, I came in with slavery, there was a bit of, uh, you know, domestic violence and violence against women in the program, you know, all important issues affecting Indigenous communities around the world and so the program was quite heavy. So afterwards, you know, I think the audience was sitting in that really heavy state. And so it was right. hard to gauge immediately afterwards, you know, what people thought, what, what they were thinking. And in the second screening, 
actually we didn't watch the program. I think it was too full on for us to watch it again. But I yeah. we did the Q&A and I came up and I thought, oh, just lighten the mood a little bit. And I said, acknowledge where you're feeling, you know, where you're sitting as an audience and um, maybe I should have made a comedy. <laughs> just no one. And that was my little joke. Maybe I should have made a comedy. But I think, like, everyone was so, like... <laughs> Deep in this, everyone was in, in shock the, about the state of affairs. I know, oh. deep in this very serious space, which is really great that it was the films were so effective. But yeah, the joke did not land. Um, <laughs> so, but they did um, in both Q and As. We had two screenings in both instances. People responded and asked a lot of questions, and particularly for Blackbird. Um, some people asked about the language because it is in um, yes. English and Solomon Islands Pidgin and um, also my family's language. And so Pidgin is a mix between um, kind of local language and English. And so it's subtitled, but I think people could, you know, pick up some of the the, well, the words just by listening. So right. I think there was a curiosity around language and there was a couple of questions about the bicycle in Blackbird, which was really interesting. I'd never been asked about that. Um, actually, a woman came up to me before the screening and asked for my autograph, which I was so overwhelmed by. That's never happened to me before. And then later she got up and asked a question about the bicycle and what it symbolises. And she said that it, it her take was that it symbolised freedom and yeah, it was really great because that's correct. Um, in the film, the character, the male character Kiko, finds this bicycle and takes it for a bit of a spin. And yeah, the idea around that was that it was just a moment of freedom for him, a moment of joy, um, away from the you know backbreaking work that they were doing. So yeah, it was mm-hmm. really nice that she responded in that way. And yeah, kind of got got the yeah. right message. It felt like she saw yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so people have been responsive and come up afterwards and talk to me and then then the importance of the social media is that they can then connect and they have been. Um, a Vanuatuan man and his wife came specifically in Berlin to see the screening. Um, yeah, so things like that. It's been, it's been really wonderful, yeah. That's great. And, and you talk, I've read something where you talk about kind of the importance of where you film and who's in your films about filming on the actual lands that were impacted with people. A lot of a lot of your actors are first time actors, but they're actually from the the groups that you're focusing on. Yeah. What's the I, I, I get what's the thought there, but I guess I just wanted to to hear you speak about it a little bit. Yeah, when we shot Blackbird, uh, I live um, in the south, so we all traveled interstate up back up to Queensland to shoot the film and we shot in a a town called Mackay and it still has, it's surrounded by sugarcane, it still has that industry very alive and well. And so when we shot the film, um, all of the extras in the film are Australian South Sea Islanders and Indigenous people who live there and so they're ancestors of the Pacific Islanders who were brought over and the two main actors, Jeremy Bobby and Regina Lepping, both Solomon Islanders, um, also have this history, um, you know, in, in their own ancestry as well. So it was – and then we had elders come come to our shoot and show us – 
how to use the cane knife and how they cut the cane the old way. Oh. Um, so we had, you know, people advising us and a community was a part of the project. We had people were baking cakes and slices and bringing them to us on set. Um, it was, yeah, wow. such a community effort. And, and the people who owned the farm were really lovely and just, you know, they lent us their horse, <laughs> Snoopy, mm -hmm. who was so wonderful. But we just had these moments where um, there's a scene in the film where Jeremy, who plays Kiko, after stealing the bike, he is kind of, you know, um, disciplined for being out of line by the overseer and um, so he's tied up at a, at a pole and his sister comes to him trying to release him but she's so sick she can't she can't do that and um, so in the film she sings him a lullaby and it, it was such a profound moment I mean in the film the character cries but really that was Jeremy was crying and I looked around and everyone was just silent with tears you know because yeah we literally were uh, shooting we were filming this story with the ancestors of the people that happened to on the land where this history happened so it was it was huge and overwhelming but powerful so powerful yeah it was yeah powerful yeah yeah oh my gosh well I think it's it's wonderful everything that you're doing and I have to go get my children and I have so many more questions you you also recently made a movie docked and another how do you say the 360 virtual reality yeah, yeah. it's called Ayasi Ayasi yeah. it means <laughs> it's a long it I was asking my dad what is the translation for horizon and he said oh we don't really have one but it's we would say Ayasi as far as this the eye can see above the sea so that's where that mm -hmm. title comes from for the 360 documentary and yeah it's kind of the follow-up uh, film to Tide of Change which we talked about before it documents the high tides in my village right. and yeah the 360 film is a follow-up but really different in that the audience can kind of put the headset on and really stand in the village with my family um, and yeah that showed at the Imaginative Film Festival last year and uh, it won an award which is really great so yeah I'm just um, and then Docked is a really indie film it's shot on a budget of nothing you know some curry to feed the crew and yeah, right. that's a film with an amazing South Sudanese actress, Noda Chol, who's based in Melbourne. And I just, I really wanted to showcase her and this particular area of Melbourne. And it's shot over two nights in the city and it's just a conversational piece. Yeah. So, yeah, I've just mm -hmm. been doing lots of low budget stuff whilst I'm trying to develop the big budget one. <laughs> the big one. It's so interesting. And I wish that we had more time to talk about like the hows of it all, how you get it all done. Let me just ask you, have you had any sort of like tech technology disaster in any of your films or, or in editing or anything? Because I was just thinking. I don't think so. Oh, gosh, touch wood. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry yeah. about that no I feel like no I feel like things always go wrong but but generally we just problem solve and I'm I think that's what directing is about as well part of it is just problem solving 
and if something doesn't happen the way I wanted it to, then how do we, yeah, how do we adjust to reframe, redo it? Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. just, I think that if anything's gone wrong, I don't really remember because we just do what we can to fix the problem. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah just, and I'm, I'm used to being self-sufficient yeah. and resourceful and working on a budget of nothing. So we just, yeah, we just use what we have and, and, and yeah, hope for the best. But it does get tricky when you're remote, like when you're in the Solomons, when you're in a boat half an hour from land and yeah, something goes wrong. You just have to, the key for remote <laughs> filmmaking is just batteries. Batteries, batteries, batteries. Yeah. <laughs> charge, charge, charge the batteries. And as long as that's okay, then everything's good. Right. <laughs> Are they running, actually thinking back to that village? I mean, do they have electricity in the, in the village? Because I'm thinking of the whole thing flooded with yeah, water. Yeah, for a long time there was no electricity, but then... Um, someone came in there are a lot of projects that happen without community consultation so someone came in and installed Mm. these massive um, electrical poles carrying electricity to the village but unfortunately only us like a a handful of people can afford to actually pay for the electricity so a couple of people do have electricity and then they sell it on so they will charge people to to charge your phone costs however much. To put right. your fish in the fridge uh-huh. costs this many dollars because everyone just lives day to day. So um, you just pay for what you can. Like you, most people right. don't buy a bag, a box of tea bags. They'll buy a teaspoon of tea leaf if they need to have a tea. Okay. So, um, yeah. That's, that's the way – there is electricity and in the past we had to like paddle or walk to go and find some electricity but now I can, um, yeah, use it in the village which is such a for, – for making films it's actually really good. Um, yeah. For batteries. <laughs> yeah. And I saw at the end of Doctor – and actually – so Tinderlocks did your sound, yes. sound design for both of your yeah. – for Doct and for Blackbird. Yeah, it's been really lovely to be a part of the hit record community because I'm able to sometimes collaborate and work with other hit recorders. And so Tinderlocks lives in my city and when I was making Blackbird, I just basically stalked him and then said, can I chat to you? What are you up to? Can I meet you? And then, yeah, so he worked on the sound design for Blackbird and then he did Docked and he's also doing the sound design and sound mix for my next short film, which is a collaboration with other hit recorders um, here in LA. So, yeah, I love the hit record community and being able to collaborate that way. It's really, it's really special i think yeah yeah and and i heard uh lexi shares undertow yes at the end of talk too i heard this song and i'm like this song's on the radio how does she have this song and then i was like oh it's on like my radio like i've heard <laughs> yep <laughs> i've heard it a million times and i love that song but i was like oh my god that's such a good song to end this song yes yeah yay i'm glad that you recognize it yeah and you know i think that there's so much more capability for us to collaborate even more i agree and i'm so excited about what you've been doing as well and and it's been so interesting. I've been a part of Hit Record for five years now. And um, just 
I've loved watching you and other people kind of grow and develop and do all of these amazing things. Like I, the podcast stuff that you guys have been doing is really great. The comedy podcasts and loving uh-huh. all the improv stuff. And yeah, it's just, it's pretty unique and special to, to be a part of Hit Record. Yeah. 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 I agree. And just the people have been so incredible. And now it's like, I feel like there's this whole new wave of people that have come on that I don't, I haven't even you know kind of connected with yet because you know you you have like your generation or something you were on a lot a lot earlier than I was but you got into the improv stuff which is really really fun and cool it's nice to see that you have a like your your alter ego yeah yeah Yeah, and I guess you know hit record is a space where I can really experiment and I love that you can do anything without fear of judgment or like horrible Mm -hmm. trolling or yeah it's a really Mm -hmm. safe space where I can I I love just kind of being a goofball really on hit record yeah and experimenting (laughs) and it helps me when I'm not feeling creative in my um my filmmaking practice I'll just kind of jump on and just do something small and hit record and it really just helps me get back into stretching those creative gets the juices rolling yeah yeah Yeah, and about what you were saying, I think there is a lot that we can all do to collaborate kind of on our own as well and on our own. So many people are kind of struggling artists and so talented, so crazy talented, but there's just not uh, – you know, it's not their whole career right now. They're not able to – to live off of it but I think there's so much that we could do together and stuff that we could create together so I uh I'm yeah that's right because I think a lot of people like I feel really privileged to have been able to um find an interest and follow it and pursue it as a career path but I mean and it is a struggle mm-hmm. like I I struggle financially there's no yeah no doubt about that but um I guess not everyone has taken that path and they're they're doing actual real jobs and <laughs> have families right. and um, are paying mortgages and things like that. So the creative stuff I understand sometimes um, falls aside, but I think Hit Record creates that space um, where people can pick up that, that and grow and nurture that creative side, whether you are mm-hmm. working in the creative industries or not. It's pretty pretty unique. Yeah. Stick around, it's not over yet. And so that was the first part of our interview, the first day that we thought would be the last. And lo and behold, Amy found some extra time right before she was set to go home to Australia. And what's fun is that now we had already gotten comfortable with each other and we just picked up the next day with some really great energy. And before I get to that second part, I just wanted to quickly ask for you to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a note on social media at notnosypodcast or email me notnosypodcast at gmail.com. So enjoy the second half of the interview with Amy Vitali Bassi. We were chatting, of course, about improv classes. If anyone's keeping track of the statistics of how many podcasts I mention improv, I'd be interested to know. So anyway, when we hit record on the second day, we were in the middle of talking about improv. So here we are. Let's get right into it once again with Amy Vitali Bassi. (laughs) 
it helped me a lot with my confidence and it came at a time where I hadn't left my house for like eight years practically because I had had my kids and I was just always in that mode and just yeah. literally going out by myself at nighttime and to a place where there were people I didn't know of different backgrounds and different ages and that was something I hadn't done a really long time and it got me over like a big hump of just confidence in myself I think so yeah and it's crazy because they just throw you on a stage and yeah. you really <laughs> you really just have to say something and then you realize well for me I did level one improv yeah. and um and then I did level two, but I didn't pass level two. And that's another story. But I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, but I just kind of, you realize, oh, it's actually not about me and everything that I'm thinking about me in terms of, you know, what I'm doing and not doing. And it's actually about the other person and listening to them and responding to them. And it's a yeah. good kind of wake up call that. Yeah, it's actually not about you. It's about, you know, the interaction that you're having with the other person. And I really, I liked that to be able to um, to think about the other person rather than just get inside your head. Although your own for head. me, it was very hard to get outside. Um, I mean, yeah, to kind of, I'm always in my head and I think always, because I'm a writer, I think that was one of my criticisms is that, um, yeah, that I was often up there on the stage trying to yeah trying to think about what I was going to say next so yeah that was a good you know doing improv class was a good exercise in trying to be present and so I just love the philosophy around it as well that um yeah that the class that I did too was just really inclusive and here is the space where you can fail like and we clap you when you fail you know like if you have a fail like someone will just fail miserably and then just bow and then everyone will just be like yes (laughs) so it's like a, a celebration of you know your successes but also your failures which I think in life is is kind of cool to bring that improv philosophy into life yeah yeah I was actually, I was I was going to ask you if you had taken improv because I know that when you go, well, you've done, you did something on Hit Record once for an yeah. improv challenge and you said that this was the very first time you had ever done improv and it's so fun to watch you do it. And then I've seen you do some improv when you go to LA uh, with, with some of the people there and I was wondering if you had gotten yeah. into it yourself. Yeah, yeah, like Hit Record is the space that, you know, where I feel safe to experiment and fail, which is actually really good because I think on the internet we're, you know, really scared of failing and right. we don't we don't post selfies of us looking terrible in the morning, you know, hungover when we just woke up. You know, it's all about this is my successful self. And so um, the reason that I did one of those improv challenges is that uh, Amalia Stevenson, who runs it, she said in the intro video, you know, you can do this challenge, you know, anyone can do it, it's open and if you fail that's okay. And I had never, I don't think I'd recorded myself, I videoed myself on Hit Record to that point and I just thought, oh, that looks really fun and I'd enjoyed the other. Um, it was like the ex- the project or challenge was a, a phone call to complain mm-hmm. about something and um, yeah, I just really enjoyed the other ones and I did one video in one take and... Yeah, it was really fun and um and actually Joe commented on that um 
which, you know, <laughs> when you're a hit recorder, Joe's like, you know, the leader <laughs> of, of this cult. You in like a way. take a screenshot of your phone if you get yeah. alert or something. It's such a big deal. <laughs> it was like I know. fist pump. And so he was just really encouraging and. I just thought, oh, that's cool. And I don't think that I would have done anything else maybe hadn't he, if, you know, if he did it. Although other people were really encouraging as well. So, um, yeah, that was that was really cool and that was the start of me, yeah, trying to do things in front of the camera. And also the reason I wanted to do it was to really challenge myself because it was something that I felt uncomfortable doing and still to this day feel uncomfortable being in front of the camera because I prefer being behind the camera where I can, you know, safely tell my story or control all of the conditions. So, yeah, it's a really great improv. Improv is great for me to kind of step outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Did yeah. you feel it? I guess you felt the same way. Um, well, Amalia, with those challenges, that was the first time I got on camera as well with with yes. through those challenges and the first i think one or two that she launched i love them so much but i would submit like like a text record <laughs> <laughs> improv text records Great. yes an improv uh, written submission <laughs> and then finally uh finally i did one and i was oh my god the nerves and the yes. Uh, and then, of course, it gets addictive. But I've seen several uh, people go through that same thing, and that was a particular challenge that people finally just said, I have an idea, and I, you know, it just, just starts to eat at you. Like, fine, I'll just do it. You know, I'll do it myself. Yes, you're right. So, you're right about the idea. It kind of just germinates, and then, oh, I'll just do it. I'll just press record <laughs> and just do it. Yeah. I actually remember particularly being in the shower, and I had the idea um for the first video I did and then I just got out and recorded it so yeah isn't that funny yeah yeah, yeah exactly but that's nice to have that kind of creativity where an idea just has to kind of come out of you and I think that's what hit record sparks is that um that space that creative space to be able to do that um yeah through collaboration which is really rad yeah so from that is that what did you take improv after that yeah yeah I did a few videos a few more videos and hit record and um yeah I just was really enjoying it but the thing about doing hit record improv is that you're on your own so you don't right. have that response thing that you well you kind of can I did yeah sometimes you do back and forth videos in sure. response to people but they're it's not different. in the same room as you so yeah I thought um we have a local improv uh, troop or not troop that sounds so <laughs> old school <laughs> like they're a circus troop like black turtle yeah. <laughs> I do have a black turtleneck um, I've seen <laughs> and I have used it for improv yeah um but yeah I just thought oh, I really love it I'm just gonna try it so I did level one um and then level two I did as well and the way that I did it was usually you do it over a term like a school term but um I didn't have the time to do it, so I did this four-day intensive. And for level two, that was a bit too much for me to kind of take in. Right. So, yeah, I gave it my best shot, but I failed miserably and, you know, got clapped out of the room. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, it's interesting. In the classes, in our classes here, I don't think you cannot pass. Like, you just go through <laughs> and you just keep going, you know. Well, it's not like a pass or fail. I think they try and 
call it a suggestion or something. Like we right. suggest that you repeat the class. Yeah. So it's not like a – yeah, because, you know, improv is all about saying yes, right? right. <laughs> so it's like they just can't say a hard no to you. It's just like we suggest that you do it again. And so I haven't <laughs> tried again, but – I think I'm I'm really I'm satisfied too because even just doing that course it really helps with my directing and seeing the the teacher I had was really really great and so I think in that level two class I was just kind of sitting back and doing a lot, lot of observing because at the time I was really interested in mumblecore and I don't know if you've heard of that it's like no. this movement in the 90s where a lot of people made uh, short films and feature films in a really small amount of time on a really low budget and uh, it was mostly improvised like uh, Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers and Greta Gerwig was in a lot of the films as well and they'd all just shot on um, you know a little handy cam like I used to have when I was first at uni and and yeah, they're really, really interesting films. And the the reason I was getting into them because that is just the kind of no budget, really quick. Let's really collaborate um, in an intense amount of time, and and let's make a film and tell a story. And so I'd been watching a lot of those films, and and doing the improv classes really helped me to kind of figure out how I might direct an improvised film. So. Mm-hmm. I did two. I did a one-day shoot in Melbourne, which was a comedy improvised short, and then I did a one-day shoot here in LA, which was a drama uh, improv. And those two experiences were so fun. Uh, as a director, it's, it was really cool because uh, I actually could kind of. It's almost like you're an, the third or fourth improv person in the room, but you're behind the camera, so. While, you know, we would do really long takes and just I would have a structure of this is your character, this is your character, this is where the scene is happening and this is what needs to take place. It needs to start here and end here and then the actors just go for it and then in between them talking and improvising the dialogue I can kind of give direction or kind of, you know, prompt them in one way in the conversation and it was just um, particularly the one here in LA that I'm still kind of editing finishing up now it was so rewarding like I think afterwards we we ended with a group hug and we were all just like so um we so loved the process I think we all kind of grew through the process which was just one day and I think that kind of filmmaking you know on a zero budget really you know inspires a creativity on a different level so yeah that that kind of improv class kind of yeah helped me to to start directing improvised films, which was really cool. That's awesome. So is that the one, is that the, you mentioned a short film in LA yesterday. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. So I got together with um, a couple of the Hit Record crew and uh, we had a cinematographer, he had a camera, I had some sound gear and I had an Airbnb that I had rented um, and I particularly got one that was a little more expensive just for myself, just kind of knowing that if I can pull all the strings and if we're all available on one day, we could shoot this thing and it worked out. So yeah, that's the one that Tinderlux is doing the sound design for it. And yeah, so it's a bit of a hit record collaboration, which is really fun. And yeah, I'm working towards hopefully doing 
that feature. I'm, I'm writing like a manifesto actually about, you know, what are the rules for making these types of films. Um, and I want to, okay. uh, yeah, I want to do like a, maybe an eight or nine day feature improv film in the future, but it does take a lot of planning. Even though it's improv, you still have to have a clear idea of who the characters are, what their relationships are and what the story kind of arcs are. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it takes a little little um, prep, but I'd really love to do that in the future. Yeah. Wow. And that are you going to put that on Hit Recorder? Is that going to be somewhere else? or? Yeah, for, for the short and eventually the feature, uh, yeah, I hope that it will be a festival thing. Like I don't, I don't think it's a mm-hmm. big film festival. The, the short that we made, I really love it and really proud of it. But, um, yeah, I don't think it's, you know, one of the big festival kind of films. It's a real, yeah, there's a lot of nice kind of smaller indie film festivals and I think, yeah, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll target those ones. So, Yeah. Yay. Improv. I love it. (laughs) So what's the process? You do all these festivals and what's the process? You just kind of have to be finding them and you personally are applying to each one or. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, when you're doing real indie stuff, it's all pretty self-sufficient and you, I have like a list of probably over a hundred film festivals and depending on like the genre of your short film or feature film, documentary, you know, there'll be specific festivals that are for documentary specific ones for kind of more indie stuff specific and then the heart you know, the first tier festivals which are like Sundance, Berlin, Toronto, Venice, um, Cannes, mm-hmm. they're all the big ones. So yeah, you once you have your short film you kind of and maybe even beforehand you think about <laughs> before you make the film if you're smart, you think about what the strategy is for the film festival circuit and you just you just gotta pay the big bucks and generally Generally, you get more rejections than you do uh, yeses, and that's mm-hmm. pretty hard getting your film knocked back all the time. But um, you do get the ones that say yes, and, and they're that's pretty. It's always a great win. And uh, yeah, if I can, I try to attend the festival. They don't often pay for you to go, so yeah. Some, somehow you got to. I was going to yeah. ask you that. Yeah, you yeah. Gotta, so you're yeah. paying. You're paying to submit your application, right? Yeah. And then a lot of times you're not getting uh, – you could get into the festival, but they're not bringing you there or anything. Yeah, exactly. Or in Australia, you can get um, funding if it's a top-tier festival, but, you know, getting mm-hmm. into those are, are pretty rare. So uh, if it's not a top-tier festival, which is those ones I mentioned, it's quite few, then, yeah, you've just got to – you know, find the money yourself or you see people doing lots of crowdfunding, like help me get to a festival or help me finish my post-production so I can put it into a festival. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. crowdfunding actually has been a really great thing for film. I think, you know, a lot of the creative projects that are on crowdfunding sites are film projects and even as a student you have to, you can't always make your film at your film school with just what they have. You often have to raise more money uh, so that you can make your production, particularly if it's a fictional narrative film, um, documentary is probably a little, you know, you don't need as much budget. But, um, yeah, crowdfunding is a really great way to get things done. And I saw you have – you're represented by, like, a management company. Yeah. And what is what is that do for you, I guess, is, you know, what's the – That's a good question. I mean – when I got the Meritamita Sundance Fellowship, I um, was approached by this kind of boutique agency in Australia, and 
I wasn't really sure if I wanted or needed representation, um, like an agent representation in Australia, and not a lot of directors have uh, an agent. So, yeah, I really thought about it, and but I met with them, and yeah, they were just really lovely, and I'm, I think I'm pretty <laughs> a particular person in the film industry in Australia. There are not, I'm developing my first feature, and there are a very, very small amount of female feature film directors. I think it's about like 14 or 16 percent for f in terms of women directors. And then if you narrow that down to women of colour feature film directors, it's really like it's probably a handful of people. I can't even find the stats on it. I don't even think they've... Um, you know, gone that far or considered right. that, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but I know that, you know, I can think of like three uh, women of colour feature film directors. So I think I'm a very unique um, person in the Australian industry also because I, I often fall through a lot of the criteria that our funding um, that are in the funding guidelines for some particular reason. So anyway, like this agent was just really supportive of of me and really wanting to kind of uh yeah have a relationship where they can help me to find work and help me because the last year or so I've been doing a lot of professional development so they seem to be in the in it for the long run and I think that's the benefit is that it's just because I am I don't know, it's just very hard being a filmmaker anywhere. And so if I've got someone on my side, it just makes things easier. And I'm realising, you know, that the, the, the business of film is a lot about relationships. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think my agent is really great because they already have a lot of established relationships and they can introduce me to people and, um, you know, help me find opportunities. And that's kind of the benefit of them and... Although, you know, I haven't really found paid work through them yet. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's not uncommon. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, the, yeah, the benefit is that they're about relationships, which is really cool. And, yeah, I did last year they helped me to get an attachment on an Australian TV show, which is where I just basically followed the director around um, through pre-production mm -hmm. and production and the editing process and... Yeah, that was a really great learning experience and something that in Australia, before they let you direct any TV, you know, you've got to go through those kind of programs to kind of, mm -hmm. yeah, just get you on set and keep learning about the industry. I had a really lovely director. He's, you know, I think he's in his 70s or early 70s. And oh, wow. Yeah, like he's got so, like, decades of experience. So great. And I don't really know how he withstood me just follow him, following him everywhere. <laughs> like, I had, I had a notepad and I was just always, like, furiously writing notes in my book. And people were like, what are you writing in your book? And I was just like, just notes. <laughs> um, and the, I followed him so much that one day I actually followed him to the bathroom <laughs> and he's like oh are you going to and I'm like yep but the ladies <laughs> um I was just like oh yeah the ladies um so that yeah that's fun and but the, you know the thing that they don't tell you about shadowing a director or doing an attachment is that it can be really hard because you're the only person on set who doesn't actually have a job. And right. I'm used to being on set 
a very small set, but um, having a job and kind of having responsibilities and things to do and when you're doing that kind of professional development work, you're literally just observing and so that was my job and it took me a long time just to be able to stand around and watch and, and be comfortable not helping people lift things or do something. I just had to right. kind of accept this is learning time and yeah, I need to be present and just take notes. So my job was taking notes and I, I think I did it well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that because I was, uh, I was on Instagram today and I saw some local, uh, some local improv people actually, they're going to be in this student film, this, uh, and, and I was seeing the, you know, of course the film has its own Instagram account and they're showing all this stuff and they're going to be filming. And I thought, Oh, I wonder if I could ask to to go watch and and um, and I started thinking, wouldn't that be weird though? Me just <laughs> standing around and uh, you know, and I don't know the people that well, and I just started to feel really weird about it. But I've I'm always so interested in the production process, but I've never been on any sort of set or anything like that. And I'm always trying to think. And my problem also because uh, one of the I'm trying to think, M. Monroe one, uh, Mike, he's here in, in Miami, and uh, I've met him, and he does, he's done a lot of extra work in the past, and he was sending me that information. I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, do an extra thing so I could get on a set, and then I, I started thinking, it's like I'm only available from like 9 to 3 every day, you know, and, and then it's like I have a hard stop, and I got to go, <laughs> and, and these, are, these are the jobs that are like you stay until you until it's over or whatever time yeah. and you know yeah I'm sure though you get that, maybe 80 bucks at the end of the day <laughs> yeah and, 80 bucks. yeah I'm sure though that like that that production that you mentioned um the smaller ones I'm sure they'd welcome you on set particularly if you did something I don't know if you took some sure you know what a good job is is doing um still photography for the the film Shooting oh, like behind the scenes, kind yeah, of behind stuff, the or? scenes, but also shooting film stills when, like, when mm. they um, when they're shooting a take, and that's all the promo stuff that they would use for the poster mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, that's a really cool job um, because mm. you get to be and they're not on set for the whole time. And for me, I'm always, I mean, my projects are always like can trying to find someone to volunteer to do it, but um, yeah, I can. It's always last minute. I'm always like, we need to find someone to take the photos. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's a good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just need to get up the guts. To, yeah, um, yeah, sure. I don't know. Yeah, and it's hard. Like, it's hard. They do say you know you can enter the film industry through film school, you know, which is a pretty traditional way, or you can try and like just get industry experience. And I think it is. It, it's pretty hard though if you want to just do the industry way. Like, even to be a runner on on set is you know, that's a pretty hard job to get on a, you know, on a proper TV set in Australia. You really have to have experience in doing it. So yeah, it's still difficult if you want to kind of enter that way, but yeah, it definitely can be done. Yeah. I have a friend that, uh, that moved to Chicago and was, you know, trying to get into the business, started doing extra work and then she'd just go around and she'd start talking to 
all the people and then she'd get a job as maybe a PA for a day. Yeah. But again, you got to have like an open ske- schedule and a hustle to, to do yeah. stuff like that. I want to do like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. a part-time version of that. <laughs> so much, yeah, you need time and you need hustle, don't you? Particularly when you don't have the resources or the money. Like I feel like if I could just find a rich person to fund my... <laughs> Right, my creative pursuits. Be nice? I'd be, it'd be fine. Like everything would be totally fine. I could just make films. They would be happy because I don't know why they would be happy. Actually, <laughs> but that's what to work on that. That's what I'm actually trying to do. I'm trying to like look for these people who support, you know, philanthropists. So yeah, yep. who knows? I'm. I know that they're out there. I'm just you know, gonna figure out how to find them because I don't obviously hang in those circles like most of my friends are same as me right exactly yeah I know someone that you know their their job is I mean I guess you call it development here but it really is it's fundraising yeah and the the whole thing anyone you meet anyone you meet at all and and let's have lunch you could support this but of course these are yeah these are the the lawyers and the yes and even that just like even running a business as a creative, you need to have like, I mean, not initially, but I'm at the point where I'm starting, you know, I will need a lawyer and I need an accountant and I need these mm-hmm. people who they're very, very expensive to engage, oh, yeah. you know, and it's just, it does become a bit of a struggle. Like, I think there's a point where you have to just tip over and spend the money so that later on, you know, you're set up and you're protected as an artist and a creative out in the world. Right. And it's funny you mentioned hustle. Like, I think there's so much hustle that we have to do as creatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have this podcast and I'm sure you have to do all the social social media around it. Like, it's, it's one thing to be a creative and, and a storyteller and a filmmaker, but then you have to have this business side. You have to be the PR yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to do all the... Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, always changing the hats. And I know that a lot of people don't like doing that kind of self-promotional side of the business. Of, of course, I mean, no one likes it. But for me, um, yeah, for me, I kind of realized early on that if I don't have a website, if I don't have a presence online, on social media, then, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to be... People, people look you up. People Google you. So you, you just have to right. have those things and they just help you get a foot in the door sometimes. And, you know, but the benefit of sharing what you're doing is that for me particularly, like I have a lot of family and friends and community in, in the Solomon Islands as well. And so now Facebook has reached <laughs> the Pacific Islands. And so uh-huh. I really want to share my stuff because, I, you know, I said earlier that, I didn't have any role models when I was little. So hopefully some of those people can see, oh, that's what, you know, that's what it's kind of like being a filmmaker. Yeah, so it's important for me to kind of do the hustle for the business side, but also to Mm -hmm. represent my community, I guess. Yeah. Well, I I love the stuff you're putting out, so (laughs) keep it up. (laughs) What's Colorbox Studios? Colorbox Studio is something that I set up, oh, I don't know, maybe six years ago now. And it was at a time when I was looking for a studio for my own film practice outside of my own house. Um, And I just, I stumbled upon this old building that was being knocked down in Melbourne where I lived. And 
I don't know, sometimes just derelict spaces, I'm really drawn to them. I just walked Mm -hmm. into this place. It was an old pub and out the back there was this old beer garden and there was all graffiti around and we had a shop front with this huge window just right out onto the street and I just thought, wow, this is a great space. Actually, not for me, but I know so many creatives who could benefit from using this space and uh so I don't know it was a little bit of a crazy move but I didn't have a lot of money but I just invested the rent was pretty cheap I invested my own money in it we renovated the space and painted the walls it was an old tattoo parlor with like skulls and roses on the front so we just painted those uh plain gray sensible gray um (laughs) arty gray um so that we had kind of just a plain shop front and then yeah I just I got people into the space and we drank wine and talked about what we could do I started kind of like a volunteer committee for the space where we would just meet one day a week and kind of run programs and we did creative like we did art crawls we did public art displays we did art exhibitions and we did a pop-up shop where people making local crafts and art could uh, have their work in the shop and and sell it over Christmas time Um, we did live Mm -hmm. music events spoken word um, art installations yeah we over a period of about five years I think we did all of these amazing creative programs we ran, ran workshops was a big component mostly kind of craft-based workshops people are sure. crazy about screen printing I don't know why like <laughs> what are these people I mean it was great for us but I don't know what why I think people were just like yeah I need to make my own gotta t-shirt. put it on a t-shirt need to yeah make, need to put a picture of a sun on a t-shirt um but yeah like that that experience you know over that time we showcased hundreds of artists in Melbourne um and brought people to this suburb which not a lot of people like now it's kind of starting to be gentrified but at the time um a lot of people came to that suburb for the first time for our program so that was really cool to kind of engage people and community Mm -hmm. and yeah just really kind of build a community around this kind of arts movement I guess yeah it was really cool yeah Yeah. and I had I had a couple of spaces kind of in the area because eventually we had to move out um and then we existed as a pop-up space so we would just run actually events all around Melbourne wherever we could we would just try and get free venue hire and we'd run events we did a um a disposable camera project Actually, I have my I have a disposable camera here. So, um, a, a really great volunteer and collaborator, Christina Arnott, had this idea to run a. Um, it was a twenty-four hour disposable camera project. So you register to get a camera, you go to a location and pick it up, and you take a roll of twenty-four film over twenty-four hours. You bring it back. And then we collected oh, them. So cool. Um, we developed them on mass, and then we would exhibit every single photograph so mm-hmm. we did one the last one that we did which was a few years ago we had over 100 participants so that's whatever 24 times 100 is do you know mass oh yeah I mean that's thousands of <laughs> that's thousands of photographs that we literally <laughs> stuck on the wall and um yeah 
exhibited and it was so good yeah. you know and we kept it cheap and accessible I think it was only about 20 bucks to um to register and then people got to take their photos home and there were prizes for photographs yeah so cool so oh my yeah. gosh so much community stuff it's amazing yeah and that's not is that not really a thing anymore or is it just a lot less yeah so the, the thing that that I don't know why but I volunteered all of those years to do that because I don't know I was just really passionate about helping and being a part of community and growing community and capacity for artists Mm -hmm. um so I would be doing my film work and then whatever money I could I put into Colorbox Studio and I was employing one person uh, one day a week by the end which was really great so all of those people in the management team it really helped them to get um, arts manager work, which is really fantastic. Um, and artists were getting paid. Uh, but I guess just by the end, yeah, I kind of realized it's not sustainable. Like I've set right. up this thing that's really cool, but it's not like a business-minded thing. You know, we were talking about having a right. business hat. Like I think I do have a mind for business, but also I have a mind for community and that often it, it right. doesn't help myself and my own kind of livelihood. So <laughs> doesn't pay your rent. Yeah. So and... yeah, in the end yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of stopped doing that. Um, and, mm. and it's Colorbox Studio still exists. And what I want it to be in the future is, you know, the last short film I made docked is a Colorbox Studio production and um Mm -hmm. yeah I want it yeah that's how I saw it yeah Mm -hmm. that's the thing I want to kind of evolve it into a production company where we can support and fund um and produce diverse creative content uh and storytelling so that's yeah that's the the big dream in the future for Colorbox Studio awesome well I know you have to go soon but I want to to one of the one of my next questions was just yeah about the future just in general what's the big dream I think we've talked about like the immediate future you're working on your yeah on your feature adaptation yeah for the future I think I definitely like I have just this hunger to make my film Blackbird and I know that yeah it's a long journey it already has been but it's one that I'm going to continue on and I definitely won't give up on that it's the story that I have to tell and so that's my main focus at at the moment and then aside from that building Colorbox Studio into a production company in a space where I can potentially employ other people and create opportunities for other marginalized communities to use film as a platform to tell their stories yeah there's a lot that I want to do and I think sometimes as a creative, I have so many ideas and so many things yeah. I, that I want to do. Like, I also want to go back and make this 360 VR documentary in the Solomon Islands. Um, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> there's so yeah. much. Um, and I'd love to build, a like, a creative online platform as part of Colorbox Studio Mm-hmm. where people can kind of, you know, either create creative content and and or collaborate, but not hit record. <laughs> yeah. It sounds a lot like hit record, but although that's kind of how, how I found hit record was because I was doing research into kind of online creative platforms and I met someone who was like, oh, I know this thing hit record and I'm on it. And that's, yeah, I, that's mm-hmm. how it was through Colorbox Studio Connections that I found hit record, which is pretty cool. But there's so much... 
There's so yeah, much I want to do. I, I relate. <laughs> I really, you you really got my mind going yesterday. I mean, like every few minutes I was opening up the notes on my phone. I was like, or I could do this, or we could all do this together. And it was just like one thing after another. I'd be just like staring off in space and someone would say something to me. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I got these, I don't know. I got all these things, (laughs) got all these ideas. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's hard sometimes (laughs) to prioritize. I mean, but of course, also just with that, it goes without saying one of my priorities is helping my family in the Solomon Islands and kind of continuing. Mm -hmm that journey of um, community cultural development and storytelling through film and and those kind of two things linking up like the Colorbox studio could be attached to Pacific Community Partnerships which is just an, a Facebook group at the moment but that's where we do kind of all of our community projects so yeah for that um, company to feed into a social justice mm-hmm kind of project as well would be the ultimate goal and uh yeah I guess I'm 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 working on it working on it yeah well it's exciting I'm looking forward to seeing watching watching what happens and can I ask you too like what are your what are some of the things that you were pondering yesterday or what (sighs) what do you would you like for the future yeah it varies by the day I too suffer from too many ideas I don't know um I'm really enjoying this podcast and but I feel like it's leading me down a path but I don't I haven't quite I can't see where the path goes yet you know um but I'm really enjoying getting to know people kind of on this deeper level and and I guess one thing that I was thinking of yesterday is there's all these artists that are uh like we were talking about not necessarily working in their art, it's not, you know, this is not an income-producing thing or a life-sustaining thing for them. And it's just the talent is just so through the roof. And I'm trying to think of how we could support each other to make it more, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just make it more of a thing, get these, get everybody working in the actual field that they want to work in and they're so talented in and I don't know just thinking of ideas like that and 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 also I mentioned yesterday about how I'm starting to get into uh all of the the water issues here we've got the sea level rise in Miami and also just with the Biscayne Bay just all of these water quality issues and all of the seagrass is dead and all of the you you know uh just wastewater issues and I I kind of want to I feel like I want to learn about it and then write a comedy about <laughs> Great. it. Great! I, I don't know. That is the best idea. Take a really serious <laughs> environmental idea and make people laugh. That's perfect. Great pitch. <laughs> but I don't know that I'm, I've got the ta- the writing talent for that. Like, I, I don't know. You do. I'm, I'm, you do. Of course uh, you do. Yes, I, you're one of so, actually. Yeah. I've got it. You're one of my faves on Hit Record. I know that if ever I want to do a read aloud project, I go to you, Rhett Gator, and and I look for something because yeah, I love your work. Thank I'm a you. fan. I haven't put in my I haven't put much out there lately, and I feel like I, I I'm forgetting how to how to do it. I don't know. I'm I'm a little. It's like I get in the you know you get in a zone, and then it's it's hard to. Like, I feel like my brain, I really need to disconnect and just kind of sit and write for a while or sit and create, which I haven't been actually creating, creating something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, for your creative, is that how your creative process works? Do you need to sit down and create 
a space and time for yourself to do it or are you walking around and with the kids and thinking like randomly thinking of right. something and writing it down how does your creative process work I do sometime lately I feel like I'll see a challenge on hit record and I'll say that's interesting but I literally like I can't get my brain to kick into gear I feel like I need to sit and do that for two hours and get into that mode and kind of and I just feel like I haven't set aside the time to do that I don't know in the summer I was just reading and reading and about comedy and about writing comedy and about uh and watching all the stand-ups and stuff and I felt like I was getting ideas going there and then I just flipped gears into something I I don't know I feel a little I feel a little lost on the comedy side right now like I want to do it but I'm not sure yeah right and I I think what I've learned through my kind of long period of writer's block is that I think you can well, I, you know, I can was kind of hard on myself for that, but mm-hmm. it's okay. I've learned like it's it's totally okay to have those times where where maybe yeah you're reading a lot or you're consuming a lot of content, right? And they're kind of like gestation periods, I think, which right. is probably like a better name for writer's block or a creative <laughs> creative inactivity. Yeah. Is you know I'm gestating. I'm going through this gestating, gestating period. Um, yeah, and I think that's totally okay to feel lost and not know what an outcome might be and just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do have faith, though, in that my entire everything has always been just kind of stumbling into stuff. Yeah, and- yeah well, I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast. It gives me a chance to kind of get to know some of the other people on Hit Record a little more. I think a lot of us do have this kind of separate creative practice and another kind of, yeah, identity on Hit Record as well, just because of the nature Uh of an online platform. So, yeah, I think it's a really great initiative that, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for your support. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And I want to expand outside of Hit Record artists as well. Uh, I've gotten a little um, nervous. (laughs) It's funny, like, I do have this, like, light level of anxiety about, like, approaching people and about seeming like... Yeah, you know, of course. Like I know what I'm doing. Yeah, and <laughs> that's so natural, though, you know. And I think, yeah, do you feel like you've gotten better at it? I'm doing but uh, interesting because we had this scheduling issue yesterday yeah. and, and we <laughs> we got on the, the phone within 10 minutes. That was a like I had a, a brief moment where I almost just bailed completely because yeah. uh, I was a little nervous. And, um, yeah, I'm just having a – yeah, get past it. Pretend pretend like I'm confident sometimes yes. when I'm not. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of times, I think you'll even, you even find it when you hang up with these calls and you get nervous about the things that you Oh, exactly. How it's going to sound. And, uh, and then when you're listening to yourself over and over again, <laughs> editing yourself, oh, it's rough. And you just have to be like, you know what? Yes. It is what it is. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah, you're so right. We kind of just have to figure out the ways of dealing with these kind of little insecurities that creep in and anxieties and 
kind of just acknowledge that they exist and just move on because yeah it's it's totally better if you put it out into the world definitely yeah (laughs) and thanks for jumping on board um (laughs) at at a a short notice i'm I'm proud of us for pulling this off i'm i'm so pleased yeah me too so um and i find you fascinating before we hang up how can people what can people watch of yours what's available yeah it's really hard with short films because they oh, they often exist in film festivals and then sometimes get hidden away because we're mm-hmm. scared to put them on the internet, internet, on the interwebs where everyone can kind of pirate them. But Blackbird, mm-hmm. my short film that I just showed at Berlinelli, is available on Vimeo On Demand. So it's just a mm-hmm. small, like a, I don't know, like it's a small amount to download it or own it, which is really great. It's available Mm -hmm. on DVD as well. But Mm -hmm. that's really at the moment the only short film that has distribution. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess if people want to see other stuff, they can contact me. Like my 360 VR piece of a university has approached me and they want to show it in their classroom. So I'm figuring out Mm -hmm. how I can do that because I don't have a distributor for my other short films. So, yeah, it's a bit it can be difficult to find platforms for your short films, which is also kind of one thing that I want to look at with Colorbox Studio is that there are all these short films and creative projects that people make and they don't see the light of day and they often don't have a safe platform uh, to kind of present the work. So, yeah, that's something that I'd like to think about in the future. Oh, yeah. I want to do stuff with you. Oh, yeah, great. Let's do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I'm starting to commit to everyone. I'm like, let's do that. Of course. <laughs> and that's the thing. Often when I'm on my own and I do, I'm do, i someone who will take on a lot because I don't want to trouble people, or just, just like you were saying, but if we can have more of these conversations and if our ideas are like, oh, my idea crosses over with your idea, what can we right. do then? Yeah, it's we have putting our heads together is can make yeah. stuff happen. Keep me on your list. Yes. Keep me on your list of people. Yes, of course so. I will. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, cool. Well, I know you have to go. Um, I'm so glad you gave me a, a chance for part two. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you Thank gave you. me a chance <laughs> for part two as well. <laughs> I hope this cuts together. Okay, it's like oh yeah, act one, whatever, act two. <laughs> Well, awesome. Have a great day and um, and a great trip back and we'll be in touch. Yes, so lovely to meet you over the interwebs. I hope we can meet meet in person one day and drink drink some more. (laughs) You're the world traveler here. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And now the part where I talk about everything we just talked about. Amy Batalibasi, everyone. Oh my gosh, aren't you just ready to get out there and create and just make something? And this interview gets me so inspired, totally pumped, really gets my mind whirling. Uh, I've got, as usual, I've got some notes in no particular order from the interview that I thought I'd just talk about. I thought her education path was really interesting and how the journalism class really showed her the direction that she didn't want to go and that that was not the kind of storytelling she wanted to do. And, um, you know, in college, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to study and I was kind of waffling between marketing and public relations. Um, Marketing was in the College of Business and PR was in the College of Journalism. 
So I took the intro to public relations class and something just didn't jive with me as much as the business courses did. So I landed on marketing and um, now I wind up doing a lot of writing for myself and for my clients and I've wondered if I shouldn't have gone through more down a journalism path to really have been taught how to write. But uh, hearing, I don't know, hearing just the comments from Amy, maybe there was a reason I didn't. I thought the way that she described it was really interesting. And as Amy talked about coming out of school with an art degree and how you're not really set up to go out and get a job, that there's not a real clear path right after college, something that I felt like we talked about also in episode nine with Maddie Stewart, a lot of the same um, sentiments, which is really interesting because like I said, I was a business major and it was so easy for me to get a job right after college. I went to the University of Florida and all of the big companies would come and do interviews on campus. Um, you'd sign up in the Career Center for an interview and start the process. And pretty much all of us were set up with a full-time job with major corporation by the time graduation rolled around. So it was interesting to hear what it's like to come out with a different kind of degree. It seems like you really have to create your own path if you're headed into the arts, which is something I don't think I had originally ever thought about. And then her story about how she started Colorbox Studio. I absolutely love the idea of a creative space for the community. It's something I think about a lot, especially um, as you know, I'm quite involved with Hit Record as an online collaborative art program, but I always wish that there was like a local space that, you know, was set up for with a green screen and with a recording area and with basically everything that you need to, all, all of the equipment and setup that you need to create is kind of made for that and a place that people can come together and create together. And she had her own version of that. Uh, they really accomplished so much. But I get it. It's really hard for something like that to stay afloat because... Y- when you think about something like that, a community arts organization, I think a lot of times you're thinking of what would be great, the services to offer, or you know, what what would be interesting for artists and for the community, but that doesn't always match up with a business model, right? So I think it's very cool. She is evolving it into the studio name for her films and... Um, just really exciting to to hear the all the all the collaboration Amy's done in the past and continues to do. And as she mentioned, Blackbird is available to rent on Vimeo. I really hope you do rent it. It's it's amazing, uh, and she's working on that feature length film for Blackbird. So it'd be cool to see what the short is. And her take on, so as she's writing the the feature length and rewriting it and talked about how she had a long period of writer's block and really likes to think of it as a gestating period. And I thought that was a great perspective because when you're done gestating, you get to give birth to something totally amazing. So voila! If you ever have writer's block, you're just gestating. Just, just, just dating. <laughs> 
I wish you could watch her film Tide of Change that she filmed. Um, it's back from 2010 when she was visiting the Solomon Islands and the waters were so high. That film really impacted me. And the, the fact that she took 40 hours of footage and was able to whittle it down into this 11-minute short film, it's really something. And there is a little preview of it on her website and... So visit our website. It's amybataliabasi.com. So that's A-M-I-E-B-A-T-A-L-I-B-A-S-I.com. And check out her work. Really spend some time on there. There's so much great information on her site. And Rent Blackbird. I'll include the links in the show notes for all of that. And I think I'm going to leave it there for today. I really appreciate you coming back and listening. And I will catch you next time. Okay? Bye. Thank you.